Well, good morning again. Please turn with me in your copy of God's Word to 1 Thessalonians chapter 3. We're looking at the last part of chapter 3 through the first four verses, excuse me, the first eight verses of chapter 4. As we continue through this letter. Paul writes after Timothy's encouraging report in verse 11 of chapter 3. Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you. And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you. So that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints. Finally, then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you, gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter because the Lord is an avenger in all these things. As we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you, for God has not called us for impurity but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this disregards not man but God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. One pretty clear main point of this particular text is that Christians should seek to please God by pursuing sexual self-control and purity. The Christians should seek to please God by pursuing sexual self-control and purity. Uh, Paul concludes the apologetic section of the letter here uh, and rejoices over Timothy's good reports. He, and he kind of has a transitional prayer that is going to be the hinge of the letter, as it were, and at least categorically take us into the second half, the more instructional part of the letter. Now may our God and Father Himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you, and may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all, as we do for you. The first part of His transitional prayer then is actually for Himself. It's actually for Himself. What is He praying? He's still not giving up. He's still not giving up the hope of going to see the church at Thessalonica. And as it turns out, by the way, it does seem that he was able to get back there. About five years later, though. Acts chapter 20, verses 1 and 2, records his trip to the Macedonian region, where he says that he encouraged the churches there. And surely, as the so-called metropolis uh, and mother of Macedonia... Thessalonica would have been one of those churches. So he did, in fact, get back there. But he never stops praying for this, that, the God, that God would direct their paths back to them and that the Lord would make their love increase and abound for one another more and more and more. Now, this might seem like kind of a trite Christianism, but if you back up to verse 10, remember what Paul's eager to do. He says, as we pray most earnestly night and day that we may see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith. Uh, it's probably better to understand that something, that despite the fact that there was love at the church at Thessalonica, that there uh, was quite a bit more of it to have. 
And, and that is part of what was lacking and what Paul is wanting to su- supply. And so he prays for this explicitly using his own love for them as an example as he exhorts them. But very, very similar to his prayer for the church at Philippi, this love has a goal. Love has a goal, when I would say it's a goal that sets Christian love apart from just love in the abstract, whatever exactly that means. He asks them to increase in love, but it's for a purpose. So that, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father. Listen to the similar tone in Philippians 1, 9 through 10. It is my prayer that your love, church at Philippi, may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment. Why? So that you may approve what is excellent and be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. We're going to come back to this in the application, but Christian love has a purpose. It comes within a narrative. It is a holy kind of a love. It is a love for one another that is designed to establish us blameless in purity and holiness before God. And so it is simply not a feeling. It is not simply uh, uh, expressions of goodwill. It It is a discerning love. It is a love that discerns holiness for a particular purpose because the Lord Jesus Christ is coming. The Lord Jesus Christ is coming. And He is coming with all of His saints. Now, the the Greek is literally the holy ones, which is essentially what a saint is, but you kind of lose the the wordplay there with the saints in the English. Because what he's saying is that He may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before God when Christ comes with all of His holy ones. The idea is those who are with Christ and those who are coming Uh, with Christ. Everyone's holy. The Christian life is a holy life. For, for, For Paul, holiness is option A, and there is no option B. That's it. Holiness. And he says he's praying that their love would abound more and more for this particular purpose so that they could be established as blameless at the return of the Lord Jesus Christ, which we're going to hear about more as the letter goes on. And so in carrying on this line of thinking and kind of transitioning, Paul now turns to discuss a few issues that, according to Timothy's report, are things that need to be addressed at Thessalonica. Finally, then, he says, and by the way, the finally here is obviously not the final thing he's going to say, but finally, given that he has explained his absence, his prolonged absence, and he has responded to their report, Finally, he's getting to this section of the letter where he's going to give uh, some some instruction. He says, finally then, brothers, brothers and sisters, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you received from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more, for you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. This ask and this urge here is authoritative. It is authoritative. That's why it says it is in the Lord Jesus. And in the very last verse of our text this morning, we're going to see that to disregard this isn't to just disregard Paul. It's to disregard God himself. This is not a suggestion to be considered. This is a command. 
obedience is expected. That received word there, if you're listening to Paul carefully in his letters in a context like this, that received is a bit of a technical term, and that is refers to teaching that was passed on and therefore received. And he said that you all, the Thessalonians, you received from us how you ought to walk and to please God. How you ought to walk, one of Paul's favorite metaphors for the Christian life in the New Testament, the walk. And we find the most frequently cited foundation for Christian ethics in Paul, perhaps the New Testament, and that is the idea of pleasing God. Christians should be people who desire to please God, even as they already have the favor of God in light of union with Christ, to seek to live a life pleasing God. To God, We see this over and over and over as a foundation of New Testament ethics. And in the rest of this letter, Paul is going to explain what it looks like to please God in three main areas. One is sexual purity. Two is work and running from idleness. And three is bereavement. How do you please God in, in bereavement? In, in our text this morning, he tackles the first of those. Um, he, he says, he softens the exhortation a little bit uh, by saying, do so more and more just as you are already doing. And what he's suggesting here isn't that they need to just do better, try harder, uh, but they need to continue to seek to please God with some of the course correction that Paul provides. And let me just stop and say, there's a, that's a word for some of you here. Some of you are wondering, what do I do? What's next? Oh, I just need to do more. What's the, do I need lightning in a bottle to be spiritual around fire for God? What is it? What's next is some of you need to hear, just keep doing so more and more. Keep listening to pastoral teaching. Keep entertaining godly and wise rebukes. Uh, keep encountering the ordinary means of grace. Keep seeking to grow in areas of weakness. But continue, but don't, but here's what you don't, you don't stay still. Because as I heard one book, I said, even if you're on the right track and you stay still, guess what? You still get hit by the train. The idea is do so more and more. Continue on and increase in this as you listen well and seek to live wisely. And then Paul is going to give them some specific instructions of how to then direct their efforts. Again, not to be confused with this, do better, try harder, but here's how you can in fact do this more and more. Here's how you can in fact do that more and more, and he breaks it down into three exhortations. Three exhortations that tease out what he calls the will of God. For this is the will of God right here. Your sanctification. That is, that's the will of God. You ever, you ever heard something? I'm, I'm just trying to discern the will of God. You go, oh, right here. God revealed his, his will in the scripture. They're like, no, 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 no. That's what I mean. That's not what I mean. I mean like more specifically. You're like, oh, right here. Right here. For this is the will of God. Your sanctification. They're like, no, no, that's not what I mean either. I mean something more specific, like should I should go to college or take this job? Oh, so you're just trying to make a wise decision is really what you're saying. Oh, yeah. Basically, that's what I mean. God has revealed his... What is... And I'm not saying that there's nothing more to say here, but it's a very succinct and a matter-of-fact statement here. What is the will of God? Your sanctification, your holiness. It's not an English word, but essentially your holification, that you would be set apart from sin, your holification. Those who belong to Christ must separate themselves 
from, first exhortation, sexual immorality. Sexual immorality. Apologize behind my bullet points here. Abstain is too mild of a word. Okay, the idea is to separate. And again, there's another play on the words in the Greek. Holy is to be set apart. Paul's saying, so you, because you are set apart, you need to separate from sexual immorality. The Greek word here is porneia. It's just a junk drawer for sexual sin. It refers to a wide variety of sexual sin. And he said, if you are in Christ, you must separate from those things. And I just want to mention how radical this would have been. I know I've mentioned this before. It's one of those things I just keep repeating, but it's very difficult for us to grasp how challenging of an exhortation this would uh, have been. To say that the sexual ethic of uh, the Greco-Roman world was loose is putting it extremely mildly. Extremely mildly. For example, it was a common for a man to have a mistress who could provide him also with intellectual companionship. The institution of slavery made it easy for him to have a concubine, and casual sex was readily available from a harlot or a porne in Greek. The function of the wife, on the other hand, was to manage the household and provide legitimate heirs. Demosthenes, who was probably the greatest of the, one of the greatest at least, of the Greek orders, listen to what he says very matter-of-factly, ironically, in his effort to praise wives. He says, mistresses we keep for our pleasure, concubines for our day-to-day physical well-being, and wives in order to bear us legitimate children and to serve as trustworthy guardians over our household. Plutarch, the Platonist philosopher, advised advised prospective brides that it's better to close their eyes to their husband's philandering activities than to complain and justify good relations with them. A pederasty, which was an older man with a younger boy, uh, was a very common thing in the society, was seen as some sense a rite of passage and a way to move upward and learn. What's more, sexuality was tied to religion. We talk about, if one thinks of all the sexual uh, elements involved in the cults of Dionysus, or more prominent at Thessalonica, the Kabiris cult that we talked about, we know almost nothing about it, except that it was very sexual. In fact, one expert on the Kabiris which I guess it's interesting you'd be an expert and still not know very much about it. Anyways, the one expert on the Kabiric cult says that the core of the mysterious aspect of the Kabiris religion was, and I quote, a phallic ritual, and that the stress during the initiation ceremony fell on sex. Folks, here's my point. Sex was everywhere, and it was everywhere in a way that it, it, it truly, it was everywhere in a way that it isn't now. I understand that they didn't have pornography, and I understand they didn't have a smartphone to access that. But how many churches have you been to, or a temple where you, where you could go to around here, where you could go and participate in sex or watch sex? How many people you know, how many places you know around here you can do that? Probably not very many. How many men do you know who openly and acceptedly have mistresses and see harlots even with their wife's knowledge? You probably don't. I'm telling you that this was different. This had huge social cost. And the thing is, Paul wasn't telling them to do things that were necessarily taboo. He wasn't, excuse me, he wasn't telling them to abstain from things that were necessarily taboo. A lot of them were uh, largely acceptable, quite common. This was a huge deal. It didn't mean just having sexual relationships with your wife, your spouse. It meant drastically changing how you interacted in society. This wasn't just saying watch better shows on Netflix or get covenant eyes on your devices. This was radical change that will ostracize you. That's what we have to hear when we hear these demands. This is big time. 
This is big time. First exhortation. Second exhortation, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. There's an alternate translation some of you may have if you're following along. The translations are split. You most likely have a superscript number that goes down to the bottom of your page where the Greek literally says how to possess his own vessel. And that alternate translation you might have is that each one needs to know how to acquire a wife. Whew, that's a pretty big difference of exhortation here. Uh, for about half a dozen reasons, I think the ESV gets it right, but I'm only going to mention two. I feel like it's responsible to at least justify uh, what I'm teaching based on the understanding of the text. Um, if we understood it to mean acquire a wife or a woman, we have to acknowledge that the text still doesn't say that that's what they're supposed to do. It says specifically, it says they need to know how to do that. Well, that's an interesting piece of procedural knowledge. Did they not know how to find a wife? Were they in need of help uh, in that procedural piece of knowledge, very key. It doesn't, it's not an exhortation simply to marry. It's to know how to do something. Acquiring a wife doesn't seem to make a ton of sense. But what is stronger, perhaps, is the contrast. Whenever we see a contrast, we get interpretive clues. X, not Y. So I want you to control your own body or acquire your own wife, acquire his own wife, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. So wait a second, again, did the Gentiles struggle to uh, acquire wives? Is that You need to know how to acquire a wife, unlike the Gentiles who don't know how to do that. Oh no, that's not it. You need to acquire the right, a wife the right way. Most of the Gentiles acquire wives in the passions of lust. Well, that's just not the case either. Most of their marriages, particularly in lower classes, were arranged. Okay? The contrast here, the history, the text itself plainly suggests that what he's talking about, in my opinion, is controlling your own body. This is not lust of the heart, okay? This is not heart adultery, a category that Jesus introduces and would have just shocked his audience. This is controlling your own physical body in holiness and honor towards God and towards other people, not controlling your own body and not acting with your body in the passions of lust like everyone else around you who does not know God. That's what he says, you're a Gentile, but guess what? You're not supposed to live like one. You're not supposed to live like the godless Gentile next door who's on a first-name basis with his mistress and his harlot and all the rest, and everyone just goes, well, that's, that's normal. That's not supposed to be you. Separate yourselves from it. Learn how to control your own body. Handle it in honor and in holiness. That's the, that's the second exhortation. And the third exhortation is this, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter. This is very interesting. This is remarkable because what he's talking about is clearly cases of sexual sin that involve someone else's wife or that involve a member of someone else's household. And he says that when you commit porneia, sexual immorality, in a case like that, you not only sin against God, you not only sin against that person, but you actually sin against your brother as well. You sin against him by interacting sexually with what is not yours. God, this party, but also this man. And so he says, do not transgress and wrong your brother in this matter by not controlling your own vessel in holiness 
in honor. And this, by the way, brothers, this is a great example why sexual sin is never private. Sexual sin is never private, whether it's in person, whether it's on a screen, because everyone is still someone's daughter, someone's, someone's wife, someone's husband, somebody's son. It's getting enjoyed somehow. Paul says, do not be the person who wrongs your brother by sexually relating to what is not yours. He gives three reasons for these three exhortations. Three reasons. First, that the Lord is an avenger. The English word suggests kind of personal vindictiveness or something. That's not it at all. The Greek sense has the positive idea of someone who brings justice, punishes the wicked, vindicates the righteous. And as we've seen, and we'll see more clearly, Christ is coming. Christ is coming with His holy ones as a righteous judge. So... Separate yourself from sexual immorality. Exercise self-control. Do not wrong your brother because the Lord is an avenger and he is coming. Reason one. Reason two, the call of God itself. For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. So Christians have been called to holiness, which circles back to God's declared will here. Your sanctification, your holification, your set-apartification, your set-apartness. Become what you have been declared to be. Become what you have declared to be. I said in the Sunday school hour that sanctification is generally described as a process by people, and that's contrasted with justification. It was like this thing that happened in the past, but the vast majority of instances in the New Testament, sanctified appears in the past tense, not as a process. Okay? You were sanctified. We read that. Uh, we read that this morning, even in the Sunday school hour. Become progressively what you have been declared to be. I have set you apart, so live set apart. Live set apart. Separate yourselves from these things. That's what you were called to. You were not called to impurity, but you were called in holiness. And the third reason here for God, excuse me, therefore, whoever disregards this, that is this teaching, this ask and urge in the Lord Jesus, disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. So he concludes with the same kind of authority he started with in the first verse of chapter Four, these aren't social best practices. These aren't pragmatic suggestions to prevent you know, unwanted pregnancy or the spread of STDs. And if you just have a higher risk threshold, you can you know, feel free to ignore them. No, this is saying that disregarding this right here is disregarding God himself. It's just, just, my, it's just a lifestyle preference. No, it's what you meant to say. You mispronounced disregarding God. That's what you mispronounced disregarding the Holy Spirit who He has given you. Remember, the Holy Spirit, it's not only a special gift that's given, it's the indwelling of God Himself. Remember from the Scripture reading? Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you are bought with a price. So glorify God with your body. Disregarding these things is not simply bad best practices. It is to disregard God himself. That's how seriously Paul takes sexual purity and sexual holiness and sexual self-control. And I'm just suggesting in a culture where people are trying to be so open-minded, their brains are falling out with regards to sexual ethics. This is a word for us right here. Okay? Christians should seek to please God by pursuing sexual self-control and purity. That's what he says. 
how do we apply this? The application seems pretty straightforward uh, in one sense, although if you ask any pastor to apply Christian sexuality, something, I mean, I could talk forever about it. There's so much to say. There's so much to say. Whether You could talk about half a dozen different topics for hours. Um, and so, but what I, I really wanted to just zoom in here um, on what the passage itself specifically indicates, which is not a, a, a lust of the eyes, it's not a heart adultery or something like that, but it is controlling your body in holiness and honor and not giving into porneia or sexual immorality. And so I want to discuss porneia and the Christian sexual ethic. My goal here in application is very, very ambitious. I'm going to move very quickly, so you have to listen even more quickly, okay? Yes, I like that. I'm going to try to lay a scaffolding for a Christian ethic in 20 minutes. I've got 20 minutes here. I'm going to try to go through this and lay out, even off an exhaustive, at least the framework I want to lay down for a Christian sexual ethic and address some things. Maybe it makes some people feel uncomfortable. Welcome visitors. We hope you come back. We didn't, uh, I did not pick this because we knew we'd have a lot of visitors. Uh, but uh, if you were interested in hearing about porneia and the Christian sexual ethic, you came uh, on the right Sunday in the providence of God. So here's what I want to do. I want to build the case that the Christian sexual ethic is built on one man, one woman, one lifetime. Here we go. Let's dive in. I'm going to move fast. I'm going to move fast. And hopefully the screen doesn't keep doing that. Or maybe yours isn't doing that. I'm not sure. Hopefully you can, you, you can uh, pay, just pay attention to me. Just pay attention to my voice. I'm going to move on here. In Genesis 2.24, after making a woman to be a fit complement to the man, a helper, not to be confused with some ancillary, uh, unnecessary office administrative assistant, but someone necessary to actually accomplish the mission. That's the idea of Ezer. In Genesis 2, this helper, God says, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother, that's leaving, and shall hold fast to his wife. And they shall become one flesh. This is a picture of that sexual union. And Adam and his wife were both naked, and they were not ashamed. This defining understanding of marriage is, and the sexual union within it is repeated by Jesus in chapter 19, where he says, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. The two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one, because they have come together. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. So this statement of Jesus comes in the context of the permissibility of ending marriage, that is to say divorce. And uh, to Jesus, to the astonishment of his listeners, tells him that unlike the law of Moses, and certainly what had become common practice during that time, that uh, someone could not divorce their spouse except for sexual immorality. And the permanence of this caused the disciples to literally say, if that's the case, it's better to just not get married. It's like, whoa, you're telling me I could get stuck with somebody. If that's the case, it's better to just not marry. But that idea of permanence is what covenant implies. Uh, the idea of marriage as a covenant is given most explicit expression in Ephesians chapter 5. Wives, submit to your own husbands, Paul says, as to the Lord, for the husband's the head of the wife, even as Christ is head of the church, his body, and it's himself, its Savior. And as the church submits to Christ, so wives should submit to their husbands uh, and everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church, gave himself up for her. He goes on, and he repeats Genesis 2.24 as well. 
Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. And so the covenant of marriage is in multiple important ways, though critically not in every single way, made analogous to Christ and the new covenant into which Christ has entered with his only bride, that is to say, the church. Now notice that the man and woman language, the Christ and his bride language, assumes that marriage and sexual relations honoring to God are between men and women, not uh, two women or two men. In Romans chapter 1, Paul provides an extended and the most explicit condemnation of homosexual sexual relations, perhaps in the Bible. Starting in verse 25, he says that because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worship and serve the creature rather than the creator, because of that, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. The men, likewise, gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. Uh, Let me just say, attempts to argue this verse and other verses condemning condemning homosexuality, only uh, saying that it, it only really condemns exploitative homosexual relations as those contrary to nature because they lack love, falter for a variety of reasons. The first is the concept of exchange that dominates this passage. The people exchange the glory of God uh, for images in verse 23. The truth about God is exchanged for a lie, and as a result of judgment, God gives them up to exchanging natural relations for unnatural ones. The very clear implication isn't that the inappropriate exchange that characterizes homosexuality isn't an exchange of a, you know, a loving disposition for an exploitative one, but the exchange of a God-designed object for sexual relations that is the opposite sex for a sinful replacement that is the same sex. But what about suggesting that the verse that Tyler really only condemns pederasty, an older man with a younger boy that was common in the culture? Well, that can't be the case either because there is no known phenomenon of pederasty in the ancient world between women at all, zero. It was a phenomenon only known among older men and younger boys, but the text explicitly addressed women. So it can't be talking about that. Well, what about suggesting that it's condemning master-slave sexual relationships that were abusive? That's really all that it's condemning. Uh, The problem here is that Paul explicitly mentions men being consumed with passion for one another. For one another. uh, And entering into these acts shamelessly, but together. Okay? The language implies mutual passion. Uh, Finally, that Greek phrase, contrary to nature, paraphusin, it's used in extant Greek literature to refer to a wide variety of sexual immorality, but particularly homosexuality. Homosexual sexual relations. And so these objections to Romans 1 simply will not do. What about the objection that Paul didn't know of committed homosexual relationships that were reciprocal? Well, the problem here is that it's just historically not true, and that's a big problem. Um, Thomas Hubbard, who is a non-Christian classic scholar, in his massive book, it's about a 600-page book on homosexuality in Greece and Rome, outlines that people in Paul's time knew of every sexual arrangement as we do today, from lesbianism, orgiastic behavior, gender-malleable marriage, all the way to long-term committed homosexual relationships. This is consistent with views. People like William Loder himself 
a homosexual who points out multiple examples of homosexual partnerships in the ancient world. And N.T. Wright, who concludes this, as a classicist, I have to say that when I read Plato's Symposium, or when I read the accounts from the early Roman Empire of the practice of homosexuality, then it seems to me they knew just as much about it as we do. In particular, a point which is often missed, they knew a great deal about what people today would regard as long-term, reasonably stable relations between two people of the same gender. This is not a modern invention. It's already there in Plato. All of the standards objections to considering homosexual sexual relations a kind of porneia and therefore sinful fail. That leads even homosexual scholars themselves, not fundamentalists, not conservatives, homosexual scholars themselves to conclude the Bible condemns those kinds of relations. Pim Pronk, a Dutch scholar, homosexual himself, understands that people really desperately want to see the Bible contoning certain kinds of homosexual sexual relations. But he says that support is lacking. Wherever homosexual intercourse is mentioned in Scripture, it is condemned. Rejection is a foregone conclusion. Bernadette Bruton, who has authored probably the most important work on lesbianism and antiquity, herself a lesbian, also concludes, I believe that Paul used the word exchange to indicate that people knew the natural order of the universe and left it behind. I see Paul condemning all forms of homoeroticism as the unnatural acts of people who had turned away from God. Finally, Dyer made McCullough, author of the massive book, one of the one massive book on the history of the Protestant Reformation, himself a gay man, writes, he really keeps it real here. This is an issue of biblical authority. Despite much well-intentioned theological fancy footwork, to the contrary, it is difficult to see the Bible as expressing anything else but disapproval of homosexual activity let alone having any conception of a homosexual identity. The only alternatives are either to try to cleave to patterns of life and assumptions set out in the Bible, or to say that in this, as in much else, the Bible is simply wrong. I regret his conclusion, but I appreciate his honesty. I regret his conclusion, but appreciate his honesty when he looks at the biblical text. The biblical evidence leads us to affirm then that marriage and sexual relations are designed by God to be heterosexual, monogamous, that is, with one, covenantal, and therefore enduring. Heterosexual, monogamous, covenantal, enduring. And conducting your body and sexual relations not set within this framework constitute porneia. Point one. That was point one. Second point. Having sexual relations with one's spouse is the normal biblical expectation for the purposes of procreation and sexual fulfillment. I take it that, uh, 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 that given that it is the only nat natural act excuse me, that can summon human beings into existence, pretty amazing if you think about it like that, I take it that sex for the purpose of procreation is understood pretty well. But Scripture in general, unsurprisingly, assumes that married people have sex for fulfillment and satisfying sexual desires as well. Proverbs 5, a great example. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth, a lovely deer, a gracious doe. Let her breasts fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always with her love. The Song of Solomon implores us not to awaken love before it's time, but once it's time, it says we can take 
our fill of it. This is a good thing, a good gift that God gives. In 1 Corinthians chapter 7, because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man, uh, Paul, go, excuse me, Paul reaffirms the nature of monogamous marriage while highlighting the importance of sexual relations in it. He says, because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. And he says, do not deprive one another, talking about sexually, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourself to prayer and then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Okay. Now, of course, sexual frequency and flavor within a marriage is going to change with time and age. But the controlling idea here is that both spouses are to seek to sexually satisfy the other as an act of love, whatever that looks like as marriage progresses. Within marriage, all non-degrading consensual sexual acts, and then it's redundant, I say that again, I don't know, within marriage, are morally permissible, though not all are equally helpful in cultivating intimacy. First, non-degrading. You cannot degrade someone just because they're okay with it for the same reason that you cannot murder somebody just because they are okay with it. No one has the prerogative to degrade themselves because they are not their own. They are an image bearer. They are created in the image of God. They are his creature. He is sovereign over them, particularly if they are a Christian. They are united to Christ, and therefore degrading sexual acts are ruled out in principle from a biblical anthropology. doesn't matter if they're consensual. Sexual relations within marriage also must be consensual. Uh, submit to me because I'm your husband. I read Ephesians 5, and it's time to have sex. Simply won't do, and here's why. In 1 Corinthians chapter 7, Paul gives an explicit exception to this rule. He says that a husband does not have authority over his own body in the context of sex, and he says the same thing for a wife. In other words, sexual interaction has to be co-authorized. It has to, if we're going to understand authority here as, as meaning anything that, at all, seriously, uh, then both partners have to mutually authorize the sexual use of their spouse's body, including, most importantly, it would seem, with them. So sex, therefore, must be consensual. I said everything is morally permissible. Some people are going to give a little bit of pushback here, and everyone's mind goes to the same couple of things, and there's some people who are way out in the deep end with the what-if questions. Let me give you, uh, so this is, I can only do so much in this context. Let me just say three, a couple, four things very briefly. Number one, if you're going to say that things that all not, that there are consensual and non-degrading acts that are not morally permissible within the covenant of marriage, you're going to have a very difficult time finding explicit biblical warrant for that position. Number one, unless you do, number two, what you may not do, which is go back and cherry pick text out of the Levitical holiness code to build a sexual ethic while you, of course, leave the rest uh, back in Leviticus. Uh, that is not a good theological methodology, and uh, it's hard to take views that are determined that way seriously. You can adopt a consistent theology doing that, but most of us are not going to want to, and I think for good reasons. Number three, just because you think something is strange or bizarre is not an argument for something being morally wrong. To suggest that that is the standard of right and wrong, particularly sexually, um, is to set the, the bar for serious discussion in this area very low, and we land very quickly in subjectivism. Finally, I'll leave you with a little principle to apply in the quiet of your heart, uh, and no one come and ask me any questions about it, okay? Um, it it's, uh, and this is to push back against some of the over-extreme emphasis on the natural law arguments that I've heard. 
Um, it certainly is the case that God has designed my nose to breathe air and to smell, and yet the burden of proof would lie heavily on the person who said uh, that it was morally wrong for me to use it to push a button on the elevator, regardless of how bizarre they thought that was. In the absence of the ability to bear such a burden of proof and in conjunction with what I've already said, I'm content with this statement as is uh, with the exception of the redundant within marriage clause. Sorry about that. However, not all acts are equally helpful. That's certainly because not every sexual relation is mutually reciprocal. A healthy, a healthy marriage and a healthy uh, sexual diet will understand this and make sure that there is connection with a person instead of just pure pleasure connecting with somebody's body. Permissible, not all equally helpful. You certainly would want uh, to, to count someone to have a balanced and uh, a sexual diet that was conducive to intimacy and connection and not just hedonism. Finally, the final point here, sexual relations outside of marriage are considered either adulterous if one is married, fornication if one isn't, or general porneia, that is that junk drawer of sexual sin, that is friends with benefits, that's all this stuff that people try to make up as inventors of evil, which is the Bible even has a category for that, all of which are sinful, okay, all of which are sinful. I take it that adultery is clear enough without addressing the, well, did this count? They did this, but not this. Let's move on from that. What about the sex outside of marriage or the sex before marriage? If you were called upon to give it a defense for that, what would you point to? What would you point to in this moment? Someone called you on the carpet on that one. Many grew up pointing to Hebrews 13, 4, translated in the New King James, which says, Marriage is honorable among all, and the bed, uh, and the bed, semicolon, undefiled, but fornicators and adulterers God will judge. Because fornication just is sex outside of marriage, uh, there it is. There's your proof text, mic drop, proof text over. Well, the problem is, in the Greek, that word is not fornication, it's just porneia. That's the word we're trying to figure out. It's the junk drawer for sexual sin. So it doesn't refer, it's not referring to something that narrow. Uh, that's why the ESV reads, let marriage be held in honor among all and let the marriage bed be undefiled for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. However, there is an important parallel here that makes this a relevant text uh, because marriage being held in honor, uh, you, would pr you might think that, that what it's getting at is marriage uh, and the elements reserved for it, namely sexual relations, that parallels God judging sexual relations outside of this legitimate, honorable institution. And then that for those who are married, the marriage bed needs to be undefiled, meaning God will judge the adulteress. Go back and look at Hebrews 13.4. There's a parallel there. It, both sexual, both porneia and adultery occur in the same sentence. Okay, but there's a parallel which leads us to suggest that they're talking about two different things, both in the context of marriage, one, honoring what marriage represents and what happens in it, I would suggest, and the other, honoring marriage once you happen to be in it, okay? But let me just leave you with a few more in addition to the larger framework that I've tried to construct this morning. Paul's exhortation in 1 Corinthians for those who burn with sexual passion, it's better to marry rather than to burn with passion, obviously implies that sexual fulfillment only finds a proper place within the context of marriage. Otherwise, he would have just said, if you burn with passion, go find someone to hook up with and get a fix and get back to life. That's not what he says. He says, burning with passion, 
get married. The way he positions it assumes and implies, however you want to look at it, that marriage is the only place where sexual relations are designed to come to expression. In Revelation 14.4, in order for the imagery to work, uh, even in the language of the text, when referring to the 144,000, uh, refers to them as, as single men. And it says that they are men who have not defiled themselves with women. What does that mean? What does it mean to be a single man who hasn't defiled yourself with a woman? You know, the answer the text explicitly gives in a, in a text that, again, is admittedly not about a sexual ethic, but it, it's, a, it's assumed in order to even make the imagery work. They have not defiled themselves with women. They are virgins. They are virgins. It was just, it was just obvious in the, concept, in the conceptual space of the original audience, and obviously John as well, that if you are a single person, how do you not defile yourself sexually? You remain a virgin. You remain a virgin until you are married. Mary and Joseph's sexual abstinence in Matthew chapter 1 is understood to be the norm, which is why everyone would have understood Joseph being reasonable uh, for desiring to put her away. And that leads me to my final point with one minute left. This is fantastic. Why doesn't the New Testament say even more against homosexuality or against sex outside of marriage? What I would suggest is, number one, how much text you give to something doesn't necessarily imply how important it is. The Bible says something clearly once. Folks, that's enough. That's enough. Okay? It's the Word of God. How many times does God have to say it for it to be true? Once. Okay, and maybe not. So, so listen, it doesn't. First of all, it doesn't have to say it over and over and over. But let me just say, I think that the reason there isn't a just a huge emphasis on it is for the same reason there is not an extended discourse on bestiality or incest, and that is everyone coming out of Judaism already knew it was wrong. And Jesus bringing in the kingdom of God and Paul writing occasional letters to struggling churches spent their time emphasizing not things that people already knew, but challenges that needed to be addressed, the nature of the new covenant and what life looked like in the kingdom. Separate yourselves, Paul says, from sexual immorality. You were not called to impurity. You were called to holiness. Do not grieve the Spirit of God that is in you, brothers and sisters. Walk worthy. Let's pray. God... We pray that you would keep our hearts, that you would give us self-control and a love for one another, but not just an abstract love, but leads, a love that leads to one another's holiness, that we could be established blameless as the Lord comes as a justice giver and a justice seeker. Lord, would you help us repent of where we need to repent, where we've made excuses or where, we're, where we've dallied with sexual sin and, and tried to rely on a cheap grace or an unbiblical understanding of license, Lord, we pray that you would help us celebrate marriage and sexual relations within it for what it is, a good gift from God from a variety of reasons. Lord, we are thankful for the gospel that can cleanse us even from the worst sexual sin that we've experienced in this room, things that we've done willingly, things that have been done to us. Lord, you can cover our guilt and our shame. I pray that you would give us wisdom, that you would give us boldness to walk in holiness even if the culture scoffs.